to uh, Genesis chapter 37. As I mentioned this morning, uh, we are going to resume our series of studies in the book of Genesis. Uh, several years back, uh, we did a series of studies in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And then after that, after break, we came back and studied uh, Genesis 12 up through uh, chapters 35, uh, really 35, 36, uh, with the list of the genealogy there continuing on uh, with the various descendants in the family. Uh, tonight we're going to resume with chapter 37, and that's a helpful, actually helpful outline uh, for the book of Genesis, I think. Uh, a lot of times with books of the Bible, especially big ones like Genesis, um, it can seem like almost an overwhelming amount of information, and it helps to divide it and break it up. And so if you want to think of Genesis in three parts, uh, chapters 1 through 11, sometimes referred to as the primordial history, from the creation through the Tower of Babel. Uh, Genesis chapter 12 picks up with God's call to Abraham. And uh, through chapter 36, uh, the account of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that being the second part, the third part is the story of Joseph sometimes referred to as the Joseph novella, not short novel, uh, because it's, it, it centers on uh, the story of God's dealing with Joseph and the whole uh, situation as to how Israel wound up in, in Egypt. Of course, the Exodus being the major redemptive event of the Old Testament, the question is, how did they wind up in Egypt to begin with? Well, the story of Joseph answers that. Now, as we study this passage and study the story of Joseph, there's a little bit of a difficulty in that the story of Joseph really is a, is a whole. It's, it's one, and uh, the summary of it uh, really uh, could be uh, stated in, in is it Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, uh, where Joseph is talking to his brothers and he says to them, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The story of Joseph is the story of God's providence. And God's providence has always been in effect. His ruling is governing all his creatures and all their actions, as the Shorter Catechism has it. Um, but the story of Joseph particularly, uh, in an indirect kind of way, examines how God is at work, not just in the world, but in the, lives, in the, in the life of one man, uh, through his ups and downs. Uh, with the assurance that the Lord is sovereign and uh, not always so plain to him, at least at the time, uh, but nevertheless quite true. And we know that having more of the, 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 the overall picture uh, and, and certainly knowing the end of the story, which is Joseph was living it, he didn't know. So tonight we're going to look at chapter 37, verses 1 through 11, where it begins. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. 
Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray this evening as we study, Lord, that you will guide us into a deeper understanding of and appreciation of the passage that's before us. Thank you for your word and pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph. That's essentially what it amounts to. Did you catch that as we were reading it? You're expecting another long genealogy. After all, in chapter 36, these are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Aholibamamama, the daughter of Anna, or however you say it. But you get the point. We're into a big genealogy here. That's Esau. And now, we come to chapter 37. Here, uh, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. Uh, Esau, you will well remember and, and know, was um, Jacob's brother, uh, was not the favored one. It was Jacob, his younger brother, whom, upon whom God set his affections. Uh, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Neither of these as, as boys, as young men, were particularly admirable. Uh, Jacob and his conniving and scheming way, uh, Esau in his crass and materialistic and impulsive way, uh, selling his birthright to his brother, uh, and yet God's favor was on Jacob. And, and we saw as we studied Jacob how he matured, how God worked in his life, and was quite a different man by the time uh, we get to the end of his story than he was when he was starting out. Well, now we have the generations of Jacob, uh, the children of Jacob. Uh, and in fact, in a sense, since from him came the 12 tribes of Israel, this really is the story of his generations. Because apart from the Joseph story, they would have died. That would have been the end of the line because of the famine that came. But we start with Joseph as a 17-year-old boy in a situation that was far from ideal. This is not exactly the idealistic pretty picture of the covenant family. What's going on here, to be frank, is ugly. Uh, and we really see sin at work, not only among the brothers, but in Joseph himself, as we will see. 
In fact, his whole family, Jacob's family at this point, was a powder keg just looking for a spark. And that's exactly what we have here. In the first place, we do have the powder keg, uh, this volatile uh, and dangerous situation unfolding before our eyes. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Now, some would suggest that, well, this is the, the normal Hebrew word for boy. The word can also have the idea of aid or assistant. Uh, he's younger, they're older. It may be that not only was he a boy with them, but may have been in a position of subservience to them, subservience to them, helping them. Uh, but that's just trying to read uh, something out of the word. And literally, he's just a boy with the his older brothers, his father's wives. And there are a number of things going on here. One, uh, depending on how you translate it here, Joseph is either a tattletale or uh, is uh, a slanderer or, or the victim of slander. Uh, we read here that Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father, uh, coming back, you know, Dad, you know what your, my, my brothers have been doing? Uh, we don't know what they were doing. It just says he brought a bad report. And it's also might could be rendered or translated that they were uh, saying they were they were stating slanderous things about him. Uh, I think the ESV is probably accurate here with most uh, translations indicating that Joseph has come to his father with a bad report about them. In other words, he's telling on them. You know, we don't know what they were doing, but Joseph came back to his father and basically is a tattletale. Now, some things you want children to tell the parents. Uh, in, in this case, if Joseph was the youngest or next to youngest at 17, um, these were not exactly eight-year-olds on the playground. We don't know what was going on, but Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Uh, and no doubt his brothers did not appreciate that sort of behavior. But it goes beyond that. Uh, another source, obvious source of tension in this family is favoritism. Now, you recall when we studied Jacob, uh, that Isaac and Rebekah, with their sons Jacob and Esau, they each had their favorites. Rebekah favored Jacob, Isaac favored Esau, and uh, in fact, those were played off each other as uh, Jacob went in and stole his, uh, the blessing from, uh, from his father. Well, uh, that pattern has continued on. Uh, we read here that Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. Why? Because he was the son of his old age and born to the wife he loved. And uh, simply put, he was his favorite. Now, as I was thinking about this passage, I was thinking about my children. Maybe you thought about your children. Uh, I don't know if parents do have favorites. I don't really know that I, I do. I don't think that I do. Uh, they're two different children, and I love them both. You know, very much. I, I don't. I would have a hard time saying one was a favorite, even identifying that. And I think that's true for most parents. Um, but in this case, it, we're told that Jacob, or rather Joseph, was his favorite son. Now, if that's the case, you know, there's not a whole lot he can do about it. If he just happens to like Joseph more than the others, but he aggravates that by making it quite obvious as we go on to read. Uh, he made him a robe of many colors. 
the idea here, it could be the colors or a long and flowing robe. Uh, the word, not exactly clear, but basically the idea is this was a special garment, uh, something valuable that, uh, that Jacob presented to Joseph that made it very plain that he was receiving favored treatment over his brothers. And again, that sort of thing, as you can well imagine, was a point of tension within the household and that's exactly what we read in verse 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. In fact, you almost get a little sense of the distance here and that Joseph isn't even named. Him. That's how he's referred to here. Him. They, their father loved him and they hated him. He's not even named in, in, in this verse. They hated him, and they could not speak peacefully to him. This isn't exactly raising kids God's way here. This is not a happy situation. This is a powder keg. It is a tense family. It is a family that is not at peace. It is a family uh, that with just the right spark uh, could absolutely explode. And that's pretty much what happens, because the spark came along in the form of a dream. And that brings us then to the spark in verses 5 through 11. Now, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Now, Joseph couldn't help the fact he had a dream. I mean, we go to sleep, dreams happen, you know. Joseph couldn't help the fact that he had a dream. However, he told the dream. He told them what the dream was. And in fact, the way that he does, the way that's recorded here, sounds somewhat pompous, even arrogant. Do you always say behold when you talk? Well, that, that's kind of an Old Testament word. It's the Hebrew word hine. And it means look. Pay attention. Behold, I have something to say to you, right? This is something important. He says it three times as he's telling them this dream. Look at verse 6. He said to them, Hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And, and, and behold, again, your sheaves gathered around it, my sheaf, and bow down to my sheaf. Now, Joseph is 17, and perhaps he was naive enough not to anticipate how his brothers might react to this dream. Or, being 17, perhaps he was perverse enough to know exactly how his brothers would react to the telling of this dream. Joseph could not help the fact he had a dream. He could help the fact that he decided to tell his brothers about the dream in what, granted, isn't stated, but the very tone of it seems to indicate that he was telling it in a way that really was designed to irritate, to provoke them. And predictably, he did. His brothers, verse 5 tells us, they hated him even more. And then in verse 6, 7, you have the telling of the dream. And in verse 8, the reaction is predictable. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? 
or are you indeed to rule over us? I mean, they, they understood this dream immediately. They didn't need to go look it up in the book, see what it meant. You don't either. I mean, it's quite plain. Joseph knew it, which is probably why he told it to them. Uh, hey, hear about this dream I had. And, and their reaction. And so it ends, verse 8, so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Words like, behold, behold, behold. And by the way, uh, that it's, it's, the, the dream is enclosed between those two words. They hated him. Look at verse 5. They hated him even more. And in the end, verse 8, they hated him even more. You realize that three times now we've been told that Joseph's brothers hated him. They hated him even more. They hated him even more. But it happened again. The third time, it's described here that they hated him, and it happened again. Verse 9, the second dream. Then he dreamed another dream. Again, dreams happen. Can't help that. And told it to his brothers. Again, knowing how provoked, how angry they were the first time. Told it again. Told it to his brothers and said, Behold! I thought, oh no. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Just what they wanted to hear, right? Behold, the sun, the moon, eleven stars were bowing down to me. Now there's a twist here because he not only told his brothers, and maybe he told his father before, but it's noted here that he told his father. When he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him. So what is this dream you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you. So his father rebukes him. His father's obviously a little bit put off by the fact that implied in the dream, the sun and the moon, the mother and the father are also kneeling, bowing down, uh, humbling themselves before Jacob. Now, again, the brother's response, his brothers were jealous of him. He's got the robe. He's got their father's affection. He's the one having these dreams. By the way, it's interesting that it changes. It doesn't say they still hated him more. It says they were jealous of him. It seems to imply that they, they may not have entirely discounted this dream. I mean, they sometimes put great stock in dreams. Maybe think, what does this mean? Maybe they were jealous. Maybe they were concerned this actually would happen. It doesn't say they discounted it. It doesn't say they hated him. So they were jealous of him, probably because of his position with his father. And the hatred is there. But... End of verse 11, his father kept the saying in mind. In other words, he treasured these things up. He kept them. He guarded them. You find that idiom in other places in Scripture as well. The idea of pondering, thinking about, not letting go of it, not rejecting it, but just keeping it in the back of your mind, we might say, that Joseph had had these dreams. Now, as we'll see, this really uh, the dreams uh, were really the spark that set this powder keg off. Uh, in, in, the, in, in what happens in the, in the sequel to it. Uh, but as we look at this passage, uh, what do we do with it? What is it saying to us living so long uh, after these things took place in, in a very different situation? Although, uh, we do learn that family dynamics uh, uh, can, can, it's, can certainly be as similar today to what they were then. Well, there's a lot we could say about it, a lot of lessons we could draw out of it that would not be entirely illegitimate to do so, lessons warning us against the dangers of favoritism uh, among our children. 
lessons uh, about, uh, for example, a father's perhaps failure to address the problems that he saw among his boys. Did Jacob address Joseph's brash attitude uh, to be to delight, it seems, in being an irritant to his older brothers? Uh, did Jacob address the hatred uh, and probably not so well hidden, if hidden at all, animosity that his brothers felt toward Joseph? After all, it said they couldn't speak peacefully to him. Surely Jacob noticed this. Well, there's a lot that we could talk about. But in some ways, that's really, I think, beside the passage. And this is always the difficulty in studying narrative passages of the Scriptures. Remember, we studied Acts. We said there's always the challenge of knowing whether this is description or prescription. You remember that? Yes? No? Maybe? Uh, Description is, of course, just describing what happened. And sometimes in the book of Acts, you have passages, well, all the way through, passages describing what happened. The problem is, are those passages meant to prescribe what should happen? For example, Acts chapter 2 describes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. It describes the apostles speaking in tongues, that is, in the languages of those who were gathered there. Uh, it describes the 3,000 people that were converted. What are we to make of that? Does that mean that we should expect the Holy Spirit to be poured out like that? Does that mean that we should expect to speak in tongues? Does it mean that we should expect thousands of people to be converted every time we preach the gospel? Those are hard questions. And as you go through the book of Acts, what is merely describing what happened and what is telling us what should be normative for Christians in every place and at every time? Those are not easy easy things to sift through and separate out. Well, when we study the Old Testament or a passage like this, we run into something of a, of a similar difficulty. Uh, this isn't necessarily a story about how we should raise our children or how we should intervene in the, 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 uh, the conflicts among our children. This is a story of salvation. This is a story of God's providence. The point here throughout the Joseph story is God's sovereignty. And what happened to Joseph from the day he was born till the day he died, and certainly the major events that we'll read about here, are included in God's decree and God's sovereignty. All of that was rooted in God's providence in his life. However, all of those things that happened to Joseph from here on out are also rooted in human sin and family dysfunction, which is exactly what we find here. It is out of this mess that God preserved Israel, that God preserved the, uh, the heads of the, the, the brothers, the 12 tribes of Israel. And so it's an amazing story as we'll look at it and see that God, in, on the human level, can take a family like this where there's hatred, severe animosity, perhaps uh, parental neglect uh, or lackadaisical approach, Uh, Things are not as they should be, and yet still work out his good and sovereign purposes to bring about his own good purposes out of the mess of human sin. God can use flawed people, in this case like a, a bratty kid, to accomplish his purposes, to bring about his own ends, and in fact to make a man of God. And so this passage encourages us 
Because we look at Joseph, we look at what God did in him, what God did through him, and we look at the background he came from, and in a roundabout way, it's encouraging. God is not limited by our sin. God is not limited by our failures to be and to do what we ought to be. And it seems to me, if we want to just look at this passage in isolation uh, and, and zero in on it tonight, though not out of context, that's the message here. That even in spite of our failures, even in spite of the mess we might make or might have in our lives, God's not bound by that. God's not limited by that. And in fact, he can work in that. And in fact, he can even use that, use the sin that is in our hearts or sin that has been committed against us to accomplish his good purposes in the world. And as we continue to study uh, the, the, the story, the life of Joseph, we'll see how that plays out in his life. Let's pray. Father, what an encouragement to look at Joseph, to look at what he was, to look at the family in which he lived, and to think that this was one of the patriarchs of Israel. Lord, we thank you for your grace in our lives, your grace in our families. Father, our families aren't perfect. Our families have sin because we're sinners. Lord, we pray that our families would be the best that they can be. We pray that you would give us grace to be the best parents that we can be. We thank you for the Bible and all the wisdom that we have that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob did not have. And yet, Lord, even at that, uh, we have our heartaches, our discouragements, our times of frustration, our times of conflict. Lord, we pray that you would overrule and rule in that to make us to be the men and the women, young people of God that you would have us to be. And we pray that you would work even through that and even use those things to accomplish your good purposes in our lives and in the world and in the church. We pray it in Jesus' name.